The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I want to begin by teaching you a word this afternoon that really is the embodiment of Christmas. You know, you hear people talk about, you know, Christmas is about the friends, the family, the Christmas is about the presents. Really, there's one word that Christmas is really about that sums it all up. And we actually just sang it in Wesley's hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and that word is incarnation. Incarnation. If you're a child, listen to me. Incarnation. I know it sounds like a big word, but it's an important word. Uh, in Latin, carn or caro means flesh. We get our English word carnivore. You know what a carnivore is? It's a flesh eater. It's a meat eater. It means that you don't just eat vegetables. You eat prime rib. You're a carnivore. Now, incarnation means in the flesh, in the flesh. And it's the theological truth that the Son of God came in the flesh. And that is the most, if you think about it, the profound reality in the history of the world. That it's a truth that the Son of God took on flesh. Think about what a humbling and monumental thing that is. Uh, the Apostle Paul puts it like this. He says, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being made in the likeness of man. Think about the eternal Son of God who's existed from all eternity, spoke the cosmos into existence, and then he became one of us. Now, if you're a child, maybe you opened up already a little doll or if you're a boy, maybe an army man, or maybe a G.I. Joe, if you still play with those things. And just think about for a second what it would be like tomorrow morning for you to become a little army man or to become a little doll. Think about how constricting that would be all of a sudden. Yes, you're still you, but now you're confined. Now you're this little bitty figurine. And in an infinite way, in an infinite degree, that is what the Lord Jesus did. The eternal Son of God became a man. He humbled himself and he constricted himself to our humanity. Did Jesus ever grow tired? Yes, he did. Did he ever become sad? You remember it? When Lazarus died, Jesus wept. Did he ever become hungry? Yes. Did he ever become tired? When he came into Jerusalem after the triumphal entry, his heart was in turmoil. Jesus was tempted, the writer of Hebrews says, in every way that we are, but yet without sin. The point is, is that he became a real man. 
And that's what the incarnation is about. And this morning, I want to give you just five observations from the passage that Kenny read from Luke chapter 2 about this reality of incarnation. So if you would, I invite you to open your Bibles. There's some pew Bibles right in front of you to Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And the first observation that I want you to think about is the historicity of the incarnation, the history of it, that it's a historic fact. Notice these, this dating method that Luke gives us. He says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, who was the, the Roman emperor, that all the world should be registered. He says this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So he, he dates the incarnation by who was ruling at the time. And most historians looking at these rulers and understanding that Jesus was born when Herod the Great was still alive have dated this census and the birth of our Lord to 6 AD because Herod the Great died in uh, or sorry, 6 B.C., because Herod the Great died in 4 B.C. And then if you look at verse 7, it says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. So Luke gives us even very specific details about the birth of our Lord, that he was born, that he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a very interesting manger, a feeding trough for animals. Now, you can go to Bethlehem to this day. You can go to the Church of the Nativity. When we were there this summer, we were all, they, they take you in because there's a long line. You go down and into, into this cave, and we're, we're all down there. And I remember uh, Grace Anna, somebody said, hey, get down there and look around. And Grace Anna went down, and she was crawling around underneath this thing. And then she came up, and she was like, what was I supposed to see? I said, well, that star apparently was where he was supposedly born. And then there's another little star, and that's where supposedly the manger was laid. Now, we have no idea in actuality if indeed that place is where Jesus was brought into the world. And we have no idea if that other place was where the, the manger was put. But those historic details are not important. The most important thing is that it happened, that it happened that the Son of God came into the world and put on flesh, that it's a historic reality that God became man. And that right there is the beginning point of true Christianity, that you come to realize that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. And this point has been, been debated for 2,000 years. Was Jesus truly God? Did God truly become a man? Muslims and others would say, no, he, he's, a, he's an, a prophet for sure. He was a, a good person. He was an enlightened teacher, but he's not God. You know, it, it, this whole idea of God becoming a man, it's just, it, it's, it's nonsense. In fact, in the early church, there were those who even gave worship to Christ, but said, you know what? We don't think that he is truly God. One of these teachers was named Arius, and Arius said, no, no, he is like God. He's, he is of similar substance to God, but he is not God. And he taught his followers a chant. He taught them to say, 
There was when he was not, and people would go around saying that. There was when he was not. And this caused great consternation and, and, and uh, great controversy in the, in the years. This is about 300 years after Christ came. And so uh, the first council was called the Council of Nicaea. And many people sided with Arius, saying that Jesus was not the Son of God. But there was one guy who stood up, and his name was Athanasius. Athanasius, they called him the dwarf, because apparently he was really short. And there, there's a phrase, Athanasius contramundum, Athanasius against the world. He stood up at the Council of Nicaea, and he said, no, the Son of God has indeed come in the flesh. Jesus is indeed God. And guess what else? He didn't just stand alone. Somebody else stood with him. Somebody that you know. Nicholas, a man by the name of Nicholas who liked giving gifts and presents to little kids. You know what he did at the Council of Nicaea? When Arius stood up and said, he is not the Son of God. He walked over and he slapped Arius in the face. That's Santa for you. He doesn't just come and bring presents. He stands for the deity of Christ. Because the historicity of Christ is important because it all builds on the fact that it's a historical reality. The second thing I want you to notice is that it's a fulfillment of promise. It's a fulfillment of promise. If you look at verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, these are not just passing historical details. These are very important details, especially if you are a Jewish person who understands your Old Testament. The entirety of the Old Testament is about the promise that the Son of God would come, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, to Genesis 3.15. You remember God promised Adam and Eve? He said, you will have a son and Satan will bruise his heel, but that son will crush Satan's head. That's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. It's the first time the gospel is preached. So throughout the entire Old Testament, there is a witness that a promised son is coming. God promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that this promised son would come from his lineage and that his, this son would rule forever. The prophet Micah prophesied in Micah 5.2. Listen to this prophecy. He says, But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. The prophet Isaiah prophesied that the baby would be born of a virgin. So very specific prophecies were given about the coming Messiah. 
And notice how God brings all of this to fulfillment through this secular ruler's decree that Joseph brings his wife Mary, who is with child, as a virgin, and he brings the Mary and the child to Bethlehem, which is the city of David, because he was the house in the lineage of David. So God puts Joseph and Mary right in Bethlehem where Jesus is born, fulfilling all of these prophecies that God would send a child who would be the fulfillment of the promise. Now, the reason why that's important for us 2,000 years later is because it says something very important about the character of God. God is faithful. And God had made these promises for thousands of years. And guess what? He kept every single promise. Every single promise. You can't find a promise in the Old Testament that God did not keep. Jesus has made another promise that he is coming again. That's a fact. History will not end with civilization just getting better and better and better or with some meteor just hitting the earth and wiping us all out or aliens coming and abducting everyone. That's not how history ends. The Bible tells us how history ends. It ends with the sound of a trumpet and the Lord will appear in the air and the dead in Christ will rise first and those who are alive will meet the Lord in the air and then we will always be with the Lord. Do you believe that? God has promised that and he is faithful. And just as sure as he came and he fulfilled the prophecies the first time, we're in this in-between time where we're waiting but God will keep his promises. He will come, and he will take his people, and we will be with him forever. So that's the second observation I want you to see is that God keeps his promises. And third, and this is so curious and so interesting, but yet so profound, is the fact that the angels make the announcement to the shepherds. The shepherds. Look at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Why the shepherds? Out of all the people, the merchants, the bread makers, the innkeeper, out of all the people in Bethlehem, why did the angels go out and appear to the shepherds and make this announcement. Well, do you remember who was a shepherd in the Old Testament? David was a shepherd, wasn't he? And Jesus Christ is the son of David. Also, God had promised in the Old Testament that he would be, God would be, a shepherd of his people and that the Messiah would come as this ultimate shepherd. This is Micah 5.4. Listen. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they, the sheep, shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. 
One of the amazing things that scholars tell us about those sheep outside of Bethlehem is that those were the sheep that were used in the temple sacrifices. So the shepherds were raising them for the purpose that they would be slaughtered. Slaughtered for a sacrifice of sin so God's people could worship him. Jesus said this in John 10. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus came, the good shepherd, to purchase sheep. Who are the sheep? Do you consider yourself a sheep? You ever see those YouTube videos of the guy, the shepherd's getting the sheep out of the little gully, and then the sheep runs right back into the gully? We're the sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But God has laid upon him, the shepherd, the iniquity of us all. Let me ask you a question. Do you think you need a shepherd? There's a lot of people, maybe some in here, that say, you know what? I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Nobody tells me what to do. I do what I want when I want to do it. I live my life however I see fit. I don't need some deity with his rules to tell me how to live. That's a cold reality because it doesn't deal with several things. One, it doesn't deal with the reality that you're a sinner and will one day stand before God. And second, it doesn't deal with the reality that we are very insignificant people. And things happen in life that you can't control. Remember, Uncle Billy leaves the $8,000 on the counter. Mr. Potter comes out and takes it and can't find it. What am I talking about? It's a wonderful life. Outside of George Bailey's control. What I love about It's a Wonderful Life, I I watched it again this year. I, I noticed something I never noticed before. Is that the movie begins and ends with prayer. Begins with Mary and the kids praying. Help my dad. Help George. And in the end, they're praying, Lord, Help him. Something's very wrong. Help him. And the reality is that in life, you will face challenges and trials and tribulations that you simply cannot face on your own. And you need a good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restores my soul. But the question is, is he your shepherd? Because he's not your shepherd if you haven't surrendered your life to him. You can't just claim the name of Christ and say, oh, he's my shepherd. You must surrender to him. You must come to him in faith and say, yes, I believe in you. I trust in you. 
I give my life to you. The fourth thing I want you to notice is the kindness of our Lord, the kindness of the Lord in the giving of the gospel. Look at this message that the angel gives to the shepherds in verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. That Greek word is euangelion, the gospel. I bring you the gospel of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. God in his kindness in the right time sent his son to be a Savior, one who would take your place on the cross in the flesh and die for your sins. Let me read you something. Remember I told you about Athanasius, the, the, the guy who stood at the Council of Nicaea with Nicholas? Let me read you something that he wrote. This is 1,700 years ago he wrote this. He said, For the word, realizing that in no other way would the corruption of human beings be undone except simply by dying. Yet being immortal and the Son of the Father, the Word was not able to die. So for this reason, he takes to himself a body capable of death in order that, participating in the Word who is above all, it might be sufficient for death on behalf of all. And through the indwelling Word would remain incorruptible. And so corruption might henceforth cease from all by the grace of the resurrection. What he's saying is, is that the good news is that Jesus came to pay the penalty for sin and to die the death that we deserve so that one day we could be with the Lord forever in heaven. Listen very carefully. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are, how famous you are, how much power you have, the companies and stocks you own, you have all got to die. We've all got to stand before God someday. And if you stand before God with your sin, the only thing that awaits you is judgment. Judgment. We're all going to die. I was, I was going around this week in my truck listening to Bing Crosby, and I told Audrey Kate, I said, when did Bing Crosby die? Look it up. She looks it up. 1977, gone. Kenny gave me a book on Ronald Reagan. I was reading this book, and at, towards the end of his life, you know, he had dementia. You know, this is the great president, Ronald Reagan, the great conservative president. And somebody goes to see him, and he comes into the room. He looks great, and he's reading a book. And they said, oh, my goodness, he looks, he looks fine. He's reading a book. Maybe he's, he's taken a turn for the best. And they went over, and the book he was reading was a children's book about Robert E. Lee's horse named Traveler. That's how much he had declined. That's the reality of the world that we live in. Death awaits everybody we know. And if there is no means of forgiveness, then judgment. But the good news is that Christ died to save sinners. That's why he's called the Savior. And so don't leave without putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because then you have a mediator between you and God, a sin substitute. That's the 
good news of the gospel. And that's why it's for great joy for all people. Now, there's one other observation I want you to see, and that's what the angels say. Glory, glory. The heavenly host said, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory means praise, adulation, worship. And that right there is where we are supposed to be at the end of all of this meditation on Christmas, is who God is, that God is kind, that God is merciful, that God intervened in history, that he didn't just leave us in our sin, he didn't just leave us to die, that God intervened, and God was gracious, and in his love he sent his son on behalf of sinners. What does that say about God? God is not some distant watchmaker who's just wound up the earth and walked away. No, God has intervened because he loves you. And in response, we are to worship him and give him all of the glory and all of the praise. So what we're going to do now is we're going to sing Silent Night. And I invite the ushers to come forward. And as we sing Silent Night, I want you to think about the kindness of God the kindness of God, the wonder of the gospel, and sing his praise. If you don't know Christ, if you don't know Christ, surrender to him. Surrender to him. It's not good news if you don't commit to him in faith. Surrender your life to Christ. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.